All right. Can you hear me all right? Fantastic. As we continue into Acts chapter 21, I'd like to thank Calvin for reading the passage. I know that being awake, let alone reading in front of a bunch of people uh, at this time of day can be challenging for a college student, and I appreciate the sacrifice. Um, Speaking of sacrifices, the uh, thermostat, well, it's not a thermostat, it's a thermometer up in the, the choir loft there is telling me it's about 61 degrees in here. That's too low. When I got in here, I thought I was getting in early to get my headspace and, you know, pray and review things. And instead, the boiler and I had words. It is now functioning again. And so it ought to get a little warmer as time goes on. But just wanted to acknowledge that before we move on. Thank you for your sacrifice. Today's passage is a bit about sacrifice. um, And it's kind of about how the mundane by which I mean the everyday things, and the ultimate, by which I mean the primary thing, the most important thing, uh, intersect in this period of Paul's ministry. He's entering a stretch that's going to be particularly tough, and yet he seems to be content, kind of on brand. So, I was thinking about sacrifices for a goal, and uh, since my wife gave announcements, my son read the scripture, my daughter's working with the preschool kids, so I get to talk about her. I did clear it with her, so it's all right. Uh, she is a senior in high school, and a senior in high school uh, has a lot of responsibilities on their plate. They are diminishing this term because things have happened over the course of the year, and really over the course of time beforehand. Mundane things like picking classes back when you're a freshman or a sophomore that's maybe going to set you up for something later. Uh, Thinking of activities that might help you present yourself as a desirable student to a college someday. Uh, Maybe participating in a sport to a degree that will get you some acclaim. Researching majors and seeing whether there's a desired one that you might want to participate in. Researching schools, which ones are good at that? Which ones am I likely to be able to get into? Which ones sound good? Which ones are in a place I'd like to live? Cultivate relationships in the meantime with your teachers so that you can find somebody who would say, yes, she's unlikely to blow up the school or whatever it is that they say. Maybe I'm projecting back from my school days. Uh, Standardized tests. We still have some of those, though they are more optional than they were back when I was a Ute. Uh, You're writing many essays. And in fact, you're writing essays and then rewriting essays with 100 words more or 200 words fewer or whatever it is. And so it's this constant process. And then you finally complete applications for which you pay, unless the fee is waived and those were good days. You complete your financial aid application with the federal people, and then what happens? Yes, you wait. You wait. You wait. You wait. And it's starting to get to be that time when her friends are hearing, she's been hearing, and uh, in the meantime, have they been waiting serenely? Have they been quietly confident in their accomplishments to date and how they have presented themselves to some mythical wise person in the admissions office who's gonna recognize their potential and talent and really make the most of them? No, they don't think that. 
As far as they're concerned, there are people rolling dice, and they're hoping for, I don't know, a natural 20 on the 20-sider. You wait anxiously is what you do if you're a high school senior. You wait anxiously, and you wonder what's going to happen, and all you know is that you're going to get some answers, and you don't know what they are. And in the meantime, every adult that you encounter asks you how the process is going. And maybe it's just Naomi, but um, my sense is that m most teenagers don't like to be interrogated about that for some reason. Ask me how I know this. Okay, here's the good news. Naomi has been accepted by the school she most wanted to attend. Furthermore, Naomi has now received offers of scholarship and grant money that will make it possible for her pastor, father, and teacher mother to have a second child at a private university next year. And so all of this is, is now possible in a way that four years ago, it was all mysterious and there was nothing that we could do to line this up other than pray for her, encourage her, and help her along the way as best we could, right? Okay. So Naomi was able to persist through all this <laughs> Take that, live stream. <clears throat> all that pressure to perform, sort of like I'm experiencing this moment. She hit deadlines. She didn't like it. She stressed out. She wigged out, but she had a significant objective in mind, okay? To get a nursing degree from a place in a region she might want to live later. She's not signing up to live there, but she might want to live and work as a nurse there. Great. Now, in our passage, Paul persists because of how he views the purpose of his life. He faces not just anxiety, but danger, not just people being indifferent to his merits, but actually being antagonistic, and yet he persists. And before we get into today's passage, it wasn't long enough, so I got to back us up a little bit. Connecting back, um, because to be honest, I, I heard Calvin reading the passage, and I was like, old phone, who dis? Uh, I, I forget things. So here, here are some bits from last week that I'd like you to, to know about. Acts chapter 20, verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, and then he preaches a sermon. So these these elders come down out of the city, um, and Paul preaches to them. And I was super encouraged by last week how Tim was able to take a sermon preached to elders 2,000 years ago and cast vision for this church from that passage. That's kind of cool. Uh, in fact, I would suggest that if you didn't get to see it, that you would watch the video. So I think we've got a slide um, with Tim... <laughs> I naturally tried to pick him at his best. Gritted teeth emoji, right? <laughs> okay, anyway, that QR code will get you straight to last week's sermon, and uh, I think it's worth, worth watching. Um, but think about this. How different 2,000 years ago, the early church, their gatherings would be from this. Like, go to other churches in the Bay Area, and you see some stuff that's kind of different, but different language, different traditions, different kinds of people in there. And yet, 
Tim's still casting vision from the same thing because the mundane, things like what kind of seats we're sitting in or what kind of songs we play or even what kind of instruments are invented, those are all attempting to be used in the purpose of something higher, and what Paul was talking about was that something higher. So the forms may change, the logistics may change, but the vision doesn't change. Every church in every place and time has to reapply what Paul taught to those Ephesian elders so long ago. So I've made my recommendation for that. Let's keep going. We're not going to go through the sermon. Acts 20 back, uh, let's go to verse 36. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. So the church leaders are distraught at the thought that they would never see Paul again. These are deeply loved people called down from their city to meet with Paul They're deeply loved by Paul, and they're clinging to him on the dock, basically, because here's how our passage starts. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and strayed straight to Kaz. The next day, we went to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at, I'm going to pronounce it Tyre. Uh, I actually think Calvin did the correct pronunciation, but I grew up churched, and that's how we said it, where our ship was to unload its cargo. Now, you may not have a mental map of the Mediterranean in your head, so let's put up a slide from an atlas. Dun, dun, dun. Yes. Something worked. I'm looking at you, boiler. Um, So a lot of the the journey that Paul's been on, we've seen doubling back. We've seen him basically going around the block, which is what I call it when I miss a turn, and so I end up not cutting across 12 lanes of traffic in order to get off at the exit I was supposed to get off on, but instead loop around safely. Um, This time, not so much. This is about as direct a route as you're going to get for Paul to get back to Jerusalem because he's in a hurry to get to that destination, as we heard last week. Acts chapter 20, verse 16, Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. He's spent a bunch of time in that province. He doesn't, at this time, want to get that entangled in farewells with the people who love him and maybe fights with the people who don't. So, He wants to get back to Jerusalem, and he has this target festival in mind. Verse 4, we sought out the disciples and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Seven days? Like, it's like you're you're driving across country, and in Kansas, you stop and stay a week. No, No offense to Kansas, but what? So what happened to his deadline? So there are a couple of explanations people have come up with, and this is the kind of thing that bugs me if I'm sitting where you're sitting. So I want to suggest here are some possibilities, two of them. It was going to be seven days before another ship sailed out of Tyre in Paul's direction. That is one thing that people have speculated. The second one is that it would take seven days to unload the cargo and to reload the cargo and prepare the ship to continue its voyage. So whether it was a new ship 
or the same ship. We don't know. These are two possibilities. And no, Laura, I'm afraid I have not found any evidence that Paul was sailing Southwest Cruise Lines. So that was not the reason. Note the people in, that are urging Paul through the Spirit not to continue to Jerusalem. Just, just make a mental note that there are people in this situation. Okay, we're going to need to talk about that. But not yet, because it's departure time. Verses 5 and 6. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanying us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. At least this time, they didn't have to peel the local believers off themselves before they got to board. Hooray. But notice there's this continued theme going on. The local believers and their families see Paul off with kneeling prayer. It's sort of an interesting thing. Why, why don't we do that? My picture here is of people who don't want Paul to go on because they have a sense for what's going to happen. They are afraid of a dangerous thing, even a wrong thing, but nonetheless, they are affectionately seeing him off in a direction they don't want him to go. Okay, I'm not wishing for more departures like that from our congregation, but I guess I'm wondering why American church departures tend to be either outright bitterness or it's one of those you suddenly disappear like Homer Simpson into the hedge um, and nobody, not a, not a drop, not a, nothing on the water surface kind of thing. Part of the reason might be because this Paul, he's kind of a big deal. It's hard for him to just disappear. But part of the reason might be that we, we look around the room and honestly, maybe we don't value the people that we see around as much as we ought to. Maybe there's an affection that these folks have that we lack for one reason or another. And so how much do you value your brothers and sisters in Christ here? And you go, Mike, I've never been here before. You know, like, okay, you are off the hook for today. But I and other people who have been around for a while, I mean, let alone Barbara, who's been here for, you know, 20 years. Um, uh, we, we, we have bad excuses to rely on. I'm a busy person. Well, so are you. We're all busy people. It's possible to be content with a current set of friends. And that's true. Maybe Christ would like us to engage with more people than our current set of friends. It's possible to want to engage primarily with people in your own phase of life or to avoid people in your phase of life, depending on your circumstances. And it's also possible to want to engage with people who are a bigger deal, and if they're not available, then forget it. Um, sometimes people come to a, a church and they know they need care, but they also don't have a vision for being able to provide care to somebody else, even though they themselves are in need. We need to value each other's each other more. And I'd like to gently suggest, not just to you, but to myself, and also to you, that we ought to value the other sheep in Jesus's flock, even though some of us might be a bit of a pain in the neck. 
All right. Clearly, I, I can't leave it there. That's too deep. So let's look at another Atlas slide. Yeah, that takes the, the feeling out of it, doesn't it? Um, you'll notice again, though, heading down to Jerusalem at the bottom, and it's starting up at the top, and boom, we're going as direct a route as we can get to go to Jerusalem. So starting in what's modern-day Lebanon, and he, he moves down. This map says Akko. Uh, it's an ancient city. This text call it, calls it uh, Ptolemaeus. Uh, then he'll continue on to Caesarea. And again, Calvin said it right. I said it wrong. It doesn't matter what you call it as long as we know what you're saying. Verse 7, we continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemaeus, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Now, that's more like it. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Okay, now a quick reminder, back in Acts chapter 6, which we covered back in the Pleistocene age, seven deacons, seven deacons, the seven, were appointed in the church in Jerusalem. These men were spiritual leaders, and they were tasked with dealing with the physical needs of the church there, and Philip, this Philip, was one of them. There's another Philip who's a, a, a disciple and then apostle of Jesus. These are two separate men. Either way, it's a good name. We last saw this Philip in Acts chapter 8, where he was directed by the Holy Spirit in this cool way to explain the writing of the prophet Isaiah to an Ethiopian official. We heard he was in Caesarea, and here he still is with four daughters. He married Elastigirl. Never mind. These daughters were known for a ministry of telling the truth. And this seems like as good a time as any to mention that we in the Church in the Valley believe that God determines the distribution of the gifts of the Spirit. The time, the place, the person he uses are up to him. The church leadership has a responsibility to ensure that order is seen, but the distribution of the gifts is God's business. And this is the first time in our passage today that prophecy is mentioned, but Here's another one, because here comes Agabus. We saw him earlier in Acts chapter 11, predicting a famine, and here's what he says now. Verse 10, after we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and hand him over to the Gentiles. Now, to us, Agabus sounds like God recruited him maybe out of drama club. Um, but I'd like to say two things about that. The first is visual aids, biblical. And the second is, in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel are, are prophets who were given this kind of visual aid uh, by God and said, this, you're going to illustrate what, what I'm showing you by doing this. So Agabus is following in this tradition, but instead of talking about either Israel's messed up and headed for doom, or Messiah's coming, what he's talking about is Paul. But you can't tell me that Luke, who's writing this down, doesn't have Paul's situation and Jesus, the Messiah's situation, in mind, because here's what he wrote about how Jesus said he would fulfill his mission. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 31. 
Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. Okay, Paul's not going to rise again yet, but... What Paul is facing is like what his Savior faced. He's headed for Jerusalem where he's going to face opposition, especially by people who misunderstand him. And it's going to be more like what his Savior faced than what you or I want to face. But here's Agabus telling Paul and Luke reminding us that God has plans. And sometimes we're not going to like those plans very much. Not for ourselves, not for other people maybe. Let's keep going. Verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. Now, this is a bit of a twist Paul's not afraid of what's happening, but Luke and everybody else there is saying, you can't do it. Look what's going to happen. And Paul says, look, if it's for the sake of Jesus, I am in. I am ready. Prisoner, no problem. Put to death, okay. Now look, I don't know. I'm just Mike. I don't know what the next decade's going to bring. I don't very much expect that the political prospects for the foreseeable future are going to get better. I don't feel like the geopolitical situation is going to calm international relations real soon. But I don't have a specific reason to suspect that I or you are going to be imprisoned or killed for the cause of Jesus in that time. You tracking with what I'm saying here? It's not an imminent threat, um, even if some people get paid to say it might be. To be honest, though, I've been thinking about what Tim said last week and about what God has asked me to surrender. So here's what Tim said. Where do you and I need to surrender? Have we surrendered anything when we've said, yes, I'm coming to Christ? Or do we come to Christ and instead of following Jesus, we tell Jesus to follow us? Are we willing to surrender our priorities? Are we willing to surrender our time? Are we willing to surrender our talents? Are we willing to surrender our treasure? I'll say this, whichever of those three, time, treasure, or talents, bug you the most that I said it, is probably the thing the Lord's asking you to surrender. So thank you, Pastor Tim. Uh, Paul's also getting the message that his life is not his own, and he's okay with that. Sometimes I'm more okay with that than other times. How about you? I want to be more like Paul, who isn't slowed down, right, by what is difficult or scary because he knows he's on the right track. He's got his eyes on the ultimate, and he's getting through the mundane that way. So after his team gives up, the journey continues. Verse 15, after this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manasseh, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. All kinds of people are getting visits on this tour, okay? Here's a guy we only know from this passage. His name doesn't appear anywhere else in Scripture. He's from the island of Cyprus, and we know Barnabas came from there. He has a home large enough to host Paul and this party of people traveling with him. 
But we don't know how he came to be an early disciple. We don't know even what that means. Was he one of the 120 who were, you know, sort of the, the outer inner circle? We don't know. But what we do know is that his care for Paul has been preserved for us all this time. And all he did was give Paul's group a place to stay that was hospitable. So, don't be afraid that God is going to call you into dangerous ministry. That's not, that's not our job to jump ahead and, and be afraid of that. God's idea of your ministry is going to be the ultimate goal. It's not going to be my fears. It's not going to be my worries. It's not going to be my anxieties. When Karen and I were growing up, I was in Northern California. She was in Southern California. We didn't know each other. I lived up here. I went to a church up here that was very different from the church she went down there. Here's one thing that we both walked away from childhood in church with. Oh, I hope God doesn't call me to the mission field. Am I right? <laughs> I have no idea. I have no recollection of what our churches were communicating to us about that. But we had years of what seemed like productive ministry to us, to me anyway, without feeling a call to full-time missions work overseas. You and I aren't Paul, right? But are we not even being Manasin because we are resisting God's claim on us to serve him? We're not opening our house. We're not opening our hearts. We're not opening our minds to those who are around us for whatever reason. Here's a guy who did that. And here's another way to think about our lives being in God's hands in 2023. It's from an insightful woman I know named Laura Stengel. One, how can God redeem your plans being interrupted? Because that's going to happen. And two, how can God use you to be intentional and bless those around you? We're about to read through the rest of today's passage, and it's going to involve Paul being intentional about building bridges to accommodate the Jewish believers and unbelievers in Jerusalem. And it's critical to keep in mind that this is a priority for Paul, the spread of the gospel, for not letting anything but the gospel be what offends and pushes somebody away from him and his message if he can help it. So... Let's check it out. Verse 17, when we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done amongst the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. I want to stop there, but then they've got their turn. They say to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. There's a culture clash that's about to unfold here. But the thing I want you to notice is it doesn't start at the top. Paul and James are not in opposition here. Paul and James are on the same page. They have different flocks. Paul represents a ministry to the Gentiles. James represents ministry to the Jews, and the two people and their two groups that they are primarily ministering to have a bunch of not understanding each other. So this is sort of a board meeting that's happening. And uh, 
it's a good news, bad news kind of situation like board meetings tend to be. And the good news that Paul has brought is look at what God is doing among the Gentile churches. And everybody who's a Gentile says, yes, he's moving and he's calling many to follow Jesus. James and the Jerusalem church elders have more of a mixed message. Yes, many thousands of Jews have followed Jesus. They have believed, but, verse 21, they have been informed that you, Paul, teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. So these Jewish believers have been watching one cable news channel or another and have the wrong information. Too soon? The accusation here isn't that Paul is just allowing the Gentiles to, to become Christians without converting to Judaism. The, the, the accusation is he's actively dissuading Jews from practicing Judaism when they become Christians. So it's, it's like a degree thing here. Let's just keep going. Verse 22. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men. Join in their purification rites. Pay for their expenses so they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. Hey, Paul, some people heard false things said about you, so prove them wrong is kind of what's going on here. It's a nice idea, but notice how it puts the ceremonial, the visual, and the financial burden on Paul to make this show of, yes, I'm actually Jewish. And I can be annoyed by this all I want, but this, this is a series in Acts, and we've been going through it, and we've seen mobs form in less easily agitated places pretty quickly. We've seen misunderstandings and false claims result in violence. What the church in Jerusalem had decided back in Acts 15 when they were first made aware of this wonderful news that Gentiles could be included in Christ. This was an innovation. Who knew? So they said, okay, there are some obvious ways in which the Gentile believers, if they just flex a little, it will allow the Jewish believers to get that we're on the same page, and it will keep the Gentile believers from as easily causing these to be ceremonially unclean. So if I'm Jewish, I've got to stay away from a bunch of stuff, and if I'm Gentile, I don't care. So care about a few things that are easier to taint the ceremonial purity of a Jewish person, and then we can all get along. The elders reiterate that decision. We're trying to be together. And their proposal for Paul, like that one for the Gentiles, is intended to make it easier for harmony to be maintained among Christian Gentiles and Christian Jews, and likely other Jews. Verse 26, the next day... Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. So Paul takes on this burden of misunderstandings. We'll see next week how well that works out, but for day, today I want to go back to a theme I've left hanging a bit. Spirit-led prophecy about Paul's future. 
So Paul started on this journey knowing that things were going to be tough. Going back to the last chapter, and now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem. Compelled by the Spirit, going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. In every city? Did Paul need a reminder this often? Like, this would be one of the primary things on my mind if I had heard it once let alone having to get an update every, every time I enter a new city. What would be the point of that? But we saw it in this passage, too, with Paul's stop in Tyre. Verse 4, we sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. And it happened again with Agabus. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. I'm reading this again because I want you to get... Paul is spurred on to get to Jerusalem. How? By the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is also showing Paul and others some sense of what's going to happen there, and so they beg him not to go on. How are we supposed to understand what's going on here? Can God give conflicting messages? What could Paul have done differently? The first thing to keep in mind is that Paul has actually been given instructions by God. If he doesn't follow them, he's not obeying his Lord. He's not submitting to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Then what is God doing? Why does Paul get this continual reminder? Why is the Holy Spirit prompting these believers to know what Paul awaits in Jerusalem? I have been seated where you're sitting in a church when a pastor preached this passage and said, Paul blew it. These were warnings, and he still went, and he suffered for it. That was a weird sermon because it ignores what Paul had been told from the beginning, that he has to go to Jerusalem, that something would happen. He wasn't sure what, but prison and hardship would follow. So let's look again at what Agabus says and come up with a reason that this happened. Okay, the Holy Spirit says... In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. He doesn't tell Paul not to go. You see that? He says what will happen. But Luke and the others respond, how? When we heard this, we pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. And I think the same thing happens with the prophet in Tyre as well. We sought out the disciples there, stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. The Spirit has said, a rough time awaits Paul, and they respond by saying, don't head into hardship the Holy Spirit has made us aware of. But Paul already has God's guidance. Paul already is clearly not persuaded by these arguments. So why do the prophecies continue to be given? It's not for Paul's sake. I think that's, that's the mistake when we look at this. The reason he's reminded in each town and the reason that these prophets speak truth about what will happen isn't to stop Paul. It's to help Paul and the other believers recognize his situation. This guy is about to have, he's had a crazy life so far since he met Jesus, but it's about to go up another notch in terms of the opposition he's going to face. If you know you're not going to see someone again, isn't that going to make you more conscientious? 
So the benefit to Paul is that the people acted on their affection for him. I know that I was more diligent about getting up to Pleasanton when my father was in the ICU than I was on a regular Sunday when we would nominally have dinner with him. And sometimes I punted on arranging that. But when I could be up there knowing that he was in dire straits, I certainly got up there. If I had known a year ago what would happen to him, those Sundays would have looked differently. And I think the deal is Paul and these people needed some of those days, aware of what he was facing because that's what support in the body is like. The benefit to the people is they got to fulfill their call of love to Paul. They got to experience unity with one another in having compassion on this man for what he was facing, for loving him, for supporting him in this ministry that's crazy. And the benefit to us is that we're made to love one another. And sometimes we need to be awakened to see other people's need for love. So as the worship team comes up, I want to close with the words of the Apostle John. I mean, I could call you the the Tam Neithling project, if that would help. Um, John, John, the disciple Jesus loved, he knew what it was to love Jesus and what, what it was to be loved by Jesus and Jesus' people. He wrote a bunch about it. Here's 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Doesn't sound like an inconvenience, does it? It sounds like a high call. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Okay, after the service, we're going to have a chance to interact over coffee and coffee cake. But for the moment, just close your eyes for a moment and think. What opportunities to love brothers and sisters here at Church of the Valley are you missing out on? What opportunity to lovingly aid another brother or sister is currently in front of you? What will you do? When God stirs action and truth in you, how do you plan to respond? (laughs) And in the meantime, how will you get to know other brothers and sisters here? Let me pray. God, I thank you that this isn't about Paul, the superhero, and the people that he came to save. Jesus does the saving. But I thank you as well for the picture that we get of people having compassion on Paul for what he's going to go through, expressing love to him in a way that's almost overwhelming. And God, I ask that you would open us to being people who know that love and share it with one another. Would you do that by the power of Christ, fueled and directed by the Holy Spirit? And I ask that you would be pleased with what we do because we're pursuing what Jesus has for us 
here. In Christ's name I pray, amen.